Enjoy. Initiate countdown. One. Two. Three. So welcome back to Leather and Spice. My name is Steve, the Leather Cook. And in this episode, I have a friend of mine, Norman Brandon, who I have a conversation with. And we talk about all sorts of things. It goes from uh, astrology to childhood trauma to building a better queer life for all. Throughout this recording, um, I am making several dishes. So I made a uh, like a Swedish dessert called um, like these coconut peaks. And the recipe comes out of a, this book called Fika. So that might be worthwhile checking out if you're interested. And then later on, I make some barley and bean salad. This conversation was recorded on Saturday, July 15th, starting at noon Eastern time. And was done over an Instagram live. All right, I hope you all enjoy. Hey. Hey. Can, can you hear me? I can. Do the, do the microphones work? The, okay, great. Yeah. I just had to get some headphones in case I was, I didn't want to echo. Yes. I think it's working well, so this is great. Thank you for joining me today. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And uh, so let me tell you a little bit about what I'm going to do um, while we have our conversation. I picked out a recipe. Um, I don't know if this recipe resonates at all with you, but let me uh, did, grab it. Did you go it. vegetarian? It is vegetarian. It is all vegetarian. Right. Um, <laughs> so it's coming out of this um, book that focuses on Swedish uh, coffee desserts called Fika. And today we're going to be making some coconut peaks. Okay. And okay. there are five ingredients. It's butter, eggs, sugar, coconut, and salt. So okay, basic. super easy. Um, and so that's what I'm going to be making while we, we chat. Um, right. I've not prepared <laughs> anything at all. So it's gonna, you know, be from total scratch and we'll go from there. That's, that's perfect. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the total scratch works conversationally too. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like that's, that's where things, you know, go. Yeah. So tell me about what's, what's been going on with you this past week. I feel like you've had kind of a big week and yeah, birthday a few I days did. ago, right? On Thursday. And, uh, it was, yeah, it's been an amazing birthday week. I, I think I always dreaded, uh, age. Mm. <laughs> And I think that that's like a concern that's both like uh, a queer concern and like a punk concern. So like coming from sort of both places, I think I had a lot of anxiety uh, 
you know, when I was younger about what does it mean to get older? And I think like queer guys specifically, uh, queer men, we sometimes, or at least when I was growing up, we used to think that you lost your desirability and your sort of edginess and, and, you know, all these things based on how old you were. Yes. Um, I think that's changed. I feel like that's changed. I feel I, like young, younger gay men now are very interested in me all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, but I, I feel like there's a difference here because, um, I mean, like, I personally was never really that interested in guys my age. Like, even when mm. I was, like, 18, I was hooking up with guys who were, like, 50 and 60 and right. so forth. And I was never interested in guys my age because I'm like, what do you have to offer, you know? And it was, so So it may be that now you are seeing a different, a different segment of the gay spectrum that maybe you didn't see when you were that age? Yes, but I would also proffer a, uh, an explanation for why you were maybe attracted to older men uh, when you were younger. And I think that's because, especially men of our age and sort of like we're in, in our generations and stuff, uh, we were really emotionally stunted, I think, as young queers. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so the general before us, I think we're even more emotionally stunted. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and so someone, someone who was 50 or 60, when you were 18, 19 or 20, honestly, you guys were probably meeting at a similar emotional age. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I mean, yeah, I think that's one way to say it. Yes, I, I think that's a fair assessment. Yes. I mean, again, I think the gaps are sort of like getting smaller now. Uh, like as kids are coming out much sooner and sort of they're able to like live their, you know, authentic selves, as they say, yeah. much sooner. Um, but, you know, like, I mean, I thought I, I came out late. I came out when I was 23. Mm. And mm. I, I think to some kids now that is late. It's like, oh, man, you blew it. <laughs> and um, do you mind sharing what year was that? So 23 would have been 97. Okay. 1997, yeah. And I think, you know, the other thing is that coming out was sort of like, I, I was trying to explain this to somebody the other day. I was saying like, yeah, I guess I could, I call that when I came out, but there was never a, I never sat anyone down and said, I have right. to tell you something. <laughs> uh, well, but, but also like you, you keep coming out all your life like right you know like that might have been a first instance where you came out whether to yourself or to someone but then it's something that you have to repeat anytime you meet someone new or you're in a new environment it's kind of this thing that we keep kind of having to to approach absolutely and i think that was so when i described coming out at least that first time in, in 1997 all that meant for me was that everything that I had been policing for my entire life I was no longer policing. So, mm. you know, uh, I was no longer policing my speech. I was no longer policing my movement. I was no longer policing the way that I discussed the things that I liked, my public taste, let's say. I wasn't policing how I dressed. I wasn't 
there was none of that was there anymore. And once you stop all of that policing, you're closer to now who you really are. And people just yes. see that. Yes. And when people yes. see that, it's pretty clear that I'm gay. I don't need to say it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. When you think back to 1997, because I think, I don't know if you watched like the, um, there's a Netflix documentary about Woodstock. Uh -huh. um, yeah. Woodstock 99. Yeah. And I, you know, like, I do have some nostalgia about the 90s, but I find the 90s in retrospect to be so um, heterocentric. Like, of course, everything's always heterocentric, but there was this like culture of just like, you you look at the Woodstock documentary and it just goes up in flames. And then it's like, yeah, of course Trump became president because <laughs> these people voted for him. Like, what is the surprise? Like, you know, the 90s sure had great music, but uh, there were a, there was a lot of like violence in the air. Well, well, there was, it was definitely, you know, it was a weird, I, I do think that like the 2000s and, and definitely Trump is sort of like the, it's sort of the revenge for the 90s because in a lot of ways the 90s was still at all the trappings of the 80s it was like i still felt unsafe to come out mm -hmm. right and i was in an alternative scene of like mostly sexless people honestly <laughs> i don't think anyone would have cared <laughs> um actually i laugh and i say that but then a, a good friend of mine who was in so like i was in a band called texas is the reason and sort yeah. of like our our brother band was uh or this band called the promise ring we put out a split seven inch with them we were very we toured with them we were like very tight and the guitar player for promise ring was also gay and so we came out at around the same time and it's it's actually funny because we moved in together as roommates and had not come out to each other and it was literally like one night after we had moved in we were walking to a show in chicago this was in chicago we were going to a club called the empty bottle and uh and we were talking about something or other completely unrelated. And then out of nowhere, I just said to Jason, you're gay, right? And he was like, yeah, you, you too, right? And I was like, yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but he came out, you know, when his band was sort of peaking uh, in okay. the public eye and it was in an interview in Spin. And after that happened, the message board that was attached to his record label just blew up with the most homophobic shit I've mm. ever seen. I mean, it was crazy. And I was, it's sort of like, obviously I didn't want to see it, but it also sort of justified my thought process when I was like, I can't come out mm. because I was like, oh my God, these people are all turning against him. They're all turning, you know, and it, it yeah. was a cesspool yeah. of homophobia. And this was indie rock. <laughs> Punk. Yes. yes. <laughs> so, what to speak of Woodstock '99? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So that was, yeah. you know, that was a thing. And I think quitting music for for even just a few years was a way of just resetting and being able to get to that place where I could just be be me and not not have to worry about a career or a look or whatever the fuck. Mm.
Would you ever want to go back to the 90s? No. Are you one of those people that are like, the 90s are the best? No. Uh, <laughs> I don't think anything that's happened is the best. I really, I'm very, it's funny because I think people sometimes think of me in nostalgic ways, but I really mm. don't. Like one of the reasons why Texas is the reason doesn't get back together as much as everybody would like us to is because of me. Like, I'm just like, mm. I'm cool leaving it where it is. I feel like yeah. we did everything. <laughs> I think it's, like, it's a, healthy, a healthy position to be in where you can just be like, you know what? Like I got, we did what we needed to do, you know? And I'm in a different space in my life where maybe like this doesn't make necessarily that much sense. Yeah, um, and and you want it to be as real as it's ever going to be, and and I think that that's something that's um, that's very true to me. Like I really feel um, a, a, a obligation, I guess, to do things when they feel real. Yes, yes. So yeah, I think that's a great way to to start this out. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about what I was doing this morning, um, because okay. I was I was thinking about you this morning. <laughs> I was like, what What are we going to talk about? Okay. And so um, naturally, I pulled up your astrology chart because you were so uh -oh. to give me your birth information. <laughs> and uh... <laughs> oh God, okay. And okay, so. So here's like a little uh, fun fact about us. So like what I'm able to do is I can like overlay our two charts like on top of each other. Okay. And okay, like this may not sound that special to you, um, but I thought that this was like kind of cool. Um, so we, we both have water signs, right? Like my son is in Pisces and your son is in Cancer, but the position of our son like your son and my son is exactly 120 degrees which like in astrology is called a trine and it's kind of this um uh representation that represents basically like easy flow of energy um you know we're in the same sign but the fact that it's like exactly like to the minute 120 degrees um like it really is suggesting that we are able to communicate well that we're able to understand each other on like many different levels and i was like oh that's a nice little thing to to kind of meditate on so um... <laughs> i mean i do feel that i do feel like we have uh we have a little bit of yin and yang but yeah. they're very complementary yeah and i almost feel like we have the type of sort of relationship to like challenge each other in interesting ways and also put each other in check if need be i think so yes <laughs> <laughs> although I, I think that you i think that you put me more in check than, than the other way because you're like, well you're a little I'm wild not, but... you're you're yes. a little wild <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is funny because i find that I've spent so much of my life like very controlled mm. and very like tight that now in my adult years I'm like I'm like no fuck it like I'm gonna be a little bit more wild because you know I had to be so constrained and so controlled for so long so there, but, okay like, so talk about that for a second because I feel like and maybe I'm a little crazy but 
I do feel like a lot of leather mind is also sort of a mind that factors in power and control, right? Yes. Like these things sort of like are in the psyche somewhere and for everyone it's different and how they're expressed is different, how they're internalized is different. But clearly like I know that I've been called a control freak um, my entire life. And I know where that comes from. I know that even when I was a young kid, like I used to do this thing where I would redesign my bedroom like every other week. Oh my God, because I used to it, do the same. <laughs> <laughs> because it really, it gave me a sense of control in a life yes. where I felt like I had none. Yes. And yes. so control was very important to me. And that's, it's in my psyche. It's not something that I can just, you know, I try to express it in healthy ways, but it's still, it can be raw sometimes too. Yes, yes. And I don't know whether that control, I don't want to say that's like what came first, that need for control or the environmental situations in which I was raised in which I didn't feel like I had control and therefore I yearned for, for control. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I honestly think that's what it comes from. <laughs> probably that. I mean, like... <laughs> I mean, because yeah. it really, like, you know, when you talk about sort of like, uh, you know, leather scenes and sort of like endorphins and all those things, honestly, like, redoing my bedroom every other week gave me those endorphins. They're the same. Yes. I, I would sit there just with this feeling of like, Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's a weird thing, but I mean, I, I think that that's sort of the, the connection for me. Like, you know, whenever you and I have ever talked about leather, like I'm always talking about the psychological piece of yes. it. That is, you know, first and foremost to me, psychological or psycho my psychology is sort of like a pressing concern. It sort of always has been for me. You know, as soon as I was able to realize that therapy was a place to go, I was like, ooh, I want that. Let's talk about psychology. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that that's, that's like a really important point. And I, you know, the idea that was popping in my head as you were speaking was about how as children, our room, at least for me, was my world. And so be able to rearrange my room made me feel like I had control of the world in a way. I mean, like my world was mm -hmm. so small. Um, that, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there, there's certainly um, in a lot of leather folks that I meet this um, need to play around with control and for me, like I tend, I tend to be exercising more of like, like the dom side. But when I do find someone that, that I could go on the sub side with, it is. I'll be honest. I think it's more therapeutic than therapy, in that I really, it, you know, it's it's really like a mental space of me giving up control, which is so hard for me. And to be able to relinquish that, that control and um, trust someone to do what they say that they're going to do and to stay within the bounds of what I feel comfortable with, 
um, I feel like in the past few years as I've really explored that, I feel like I've become more like integrated in my body mm -hmm. because of that. I mean, I feel like that's, um, you know, I've always said like when I talk about subs, like I almost have like a, like a knot in my throat or something. Cause I feel like, oh my God, it's so like, what a bold, vulnerable, intimate place to put yourself in of just totally trust and intimacy. And like, you know, that's that real sort of like, it's really, it's a deep headspace to put yourself in. And I have to be oh, honest, yeah. it's, it's one that I rarely ever entered because it's that vulnerable. Yeah. <laughs> and it puts yes. me in a place where like, I freak out. <laughs> but maybe that's, those are my trust issues. But that's, to play. <laughs> yes, yes. And I think that that, at least for me, like, that's a sign that there's something to, to work on. Now that could be a sign that like, you're not with the right person. Right. Um, and that you don't feel like you can trust that person. But for me, I feel like as a, you know, growing up, I just felt like I, you know, I think reflecting back on things that I was quite disassociated, you know, mm. from myself and from my life. And when I'm in those sexual environments, it's like nothing exists except the present like it brings me it brings everything into focus and i feel for once it's like united you know i think that day to day i often have like some inner monologue that is talking about like something that happened like 10 years ago or 20 years ago and i'm like still harping on it like for right. some reason you know and i find that really intense you know, sessions really cuts that, that voice out. And I have no choice but to be present and be there. You know, for me, like the sessions, like a meditation, like that's, mm -hmm. it's at that level for me. Yeah. I mean, it's funny as we're talking about this and like, I'm looking at you and you're sort of like, you're giving me Rob Halford, right? And I'm like, really into that right and i think <laughs> um because i'm thinking about being a performer and i'm thinking about walking on stage and i'm thinking about there's a mo moment in the 90s when everything about sort of how i walked on stage changed and mm. it's funny because thinking about this in the, in the context of this <clears throat> conversation you know, I think about Rob Halford. So Rob Halford used to go on stage with a fucking motorcycle, fucking head to toe in leather, and just like gets off the motorcycle and just starts fucking screaming. And you are like in his world. He is in okay. control, right? Like this is like a pure Dom move. <laughs> and so it wasn't him that I know necessarily thought about this from it was Liam Gallagher <laughs> but I, I remember <laughs> no I remember seeing Liam Gallagher walk on stage hands behind his back and just his his demeanor just completely upright you know and just looks into the audience and there's just a sense of like I'm in control and I remember mm. 
and I remember for years, there was times where I would walk on stage almost like peepishly, like, oh, thanks for supporting me, you know? <laughs> and I realized at some point, nobody's paying to see that. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Where, where is that? Where, if you're going to be a control freak, at least just walk, walk on and, and own it. Yes. 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 <laughs> you know find that find that part of you that is in control and that's like really sort of like fully confident and in that moment i mean it's funny because what you're talking about with with scenes and whatnot and being fully present that's sort of what i crave on stage like that's what i want i want to be there fully and i want to like also like and this is something i'm still working on and this also might be relevant to scenes is trying to be very deliberate about movement about, about and and you know a scene it's different because there's touch involved and things like that but like but sometimes we can sort of like just lose ourselves completely and there's there's magic in that yeah. but also you can get hurt <laughs> in on both in, in scene and stage <laughs> So this 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 sense of being deliberate about your movement, about your thought, about your you know your general energy, I think is really also like a part of control that maybe we don't think about often. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking about what you mentioned about like going on on the stage in a sheepish uh, kind of like manner let's say um where do you think that comes from like do you think that that uh was coming from like a place of like insecurity of not ne necessarily knowing like how to present yourself as a gay man or was it that you knew that you were gay but you didn't know how the audience would receive you as a gay man i asked that because like i certainly struggled with similar things, you know, in my line of work in the past. And then I got to the point where I was like, I don't give a shit. But, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, okay. So there was definitely a period of time where I'd, I'd say that I was in the zone of, don't look at me, like, don't pay attention to me. Yeah. Like yeah. there was this, just hiding yourself, shrinking yourself. Um, and, and that could be confused with modesty, but I sort of, think of it more as maybe like a, um, a vestige of the closet. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's still sort of like this thing of just trying to get away with being there and not being there. Um, because the more people notice you, the more scrutiny you might find. And when you're in the closet, that's a, that you don't want scrutiny. Yeah. So, so that's one thing. Um, I also think that like most gay men, I would probably say. Uh, my struggle with my own self-worth is uh, well documented. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think like, you know, I think there was a part of me that genuinely felt like I don't deserve this, mm. you know? And it's tough because you never want to get into a place of entitlement of any kind. Sure. I, I, don't, I don't ever want to feel entitled to anything like that, but, but I but yeah. I do feel like um, there's a 
difference between entitlement and being okay and saying like, no, I earned that. I did mm -hmm. something good, like hooray for me. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, I find that what I struggled with, um, you know, it wasn't until about 2020, like right before the pandemic, like before the shutdown, that I started having birthday parties. Like before that, I would never have a birthday party for myself. And I wouldn't even tell people Steve, it was my birthday. We might be the same person. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't tell anybody when my birthday was until I was like in my 30s, like well into my 30s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then I was like, you know what? No, like I go to everyone else's parties, like when they're celebrating it, like I should did have people over to celebrate my life and you know to have a good time but i was all in this like you know every day is the same like we're all gonna die life is suffering you know like buddhist bullshit and i kind of was just like no like i'm gonna just enjoy life and if that means having people over for my birthday i'm gonna do that but i think like you know, going back to my family, you know, a lot of the birthday celebrations I had as an early, as a very young kid, just don't have, have many good memories. Like I just remember always like turning into a drama scene. Right. But by the age of like nine or 10, I was like, I don't want anything to do with this. We're not having a party because one in my family will always make the drama out of it you know, right make it about them instead of the person who the day is about and you know i mean yeah when you say it when you when you go back that far i realize that maybe my weird tendency to not celebrate my birthday for so many years was based on the fact that my family never celebrated my birthday i never mm. had a, a birthday party as a child never one not one where yeah. they were like invite your friends and we're gonna have cake and we're gonna have to like nope no not one I, and that's why i'm yeah. very peculiar about my birthday rituals now yes. it's very yeah. important to me so for years yes my partner didn't fully understand the importance of one thing which is that i have to eat birthday cake on my birthday sure but when i say birthday cake I'm very specific about what birthday cake is it's not red velvet cake with a candle in it okay. it's not you know it's not chocolate cake it's like a birthday cake is a vanilla cake with buttercream frosting and confetti sprinkles on it <laughs> <laughs> and the way I finally got it through because years would go and, and he would get me the wrong cake and I'd be like, oh my God, <laughs> like, no. Um, but finally one year I said, look, if we went to the ice cream shop yeah. and you saw birthday cake ice cream on the menu, what <laughs> would that be? And he was like, it would probably be like vanilla with sprinkles. And I was like, Yes. <laughs> that is birthday cake. Everything else is just cake. Cake with a candle on your birthday, but it's not birthday cake. <laughs> so anyway, we all have sort of specific rituals. <laughs> I, um, what's popping in my head is 
like as a kid, the birthday cake that my mom would get me was called a brown derby cake, which is a cake that um, has lots of fruit in it. So it has like strawberries, I want to say bananas, um, lots of whipped cream. And I think that there might also be some like cocoa mixed in with like a vanilla um, cake. I have never made it myself. However, this party that I'm referencing, um, the last party before COVID is what I call it. Um, a friend of mine made it for me. I was like, I would really appreciate if you could make this for me. And he, he made the cake and, you know, it was my first like birthday party really ever, like as an adult, you know, and right. I had this cake and I just felt like, you know, there was this like, coming together of my friends, but also like reuniting myself or like my youth self in a way. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, as we're speaking too, I should say that, you know, I'll be in Syracuse in September and yes. now I'm feeling like the leather cook has to make me a birthday cake. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little late, but still. It's going to be late. You know, I could always, I'll make you something. <laughs> I'll make you something. <laughs> it's funny. I, I do feel like the, um, all the stuff, like, you know, I've been doing a lot of thinking this week about punk mm -hmm. and about, uh, and also like about our conversation that we had earlier in the week, mm -hmm. we were talking about different facets of leather. And like, um, one of the things that I sort of, was remembering or thinking about a lot this week is uh, gatekeeping. Okay, yeah. And I've been thinking about it mostly in, in punk world because I've, you know, I've started uh, this publication again, Antimatter, mm -hmm. and, uh, and it's forced me to sort of think about like the community that I'm moving into again, um, as a writer anyway, I've never left the community, but, um, I stopped writing about it for a long time. And, and one of the sort of like key things that sort of keeps coming up as I think about the history of punk and sort of like my history with it is the gatekeeping aspect of it. What makes you punk, right? What makes you hardcore? And it reminded me a little bit of the conversation that we had, like, well, what does that mean to be leather? And mm -hmm. what, you know, like, who decides <laughs> who's the big leather god in the sky with a book of leather right. Right. So, so so tell us what do you think where are you in so process? it's interesting i mean i've been thinking a lot about um well one i've been thinking a lot about the analogy that i sort of made in our conversation um with gay identity versus leather identity. So obviously, since no one else was in our conversation but us, I'll, <laughs> I'll say it again. But the, the analogy being that when you are gay and celibate, right, does that mean you're not gay? So meaning that what is, what does being gay mean? People my entire life, right, um, and your entire life, I'm sure, equated queerness 
with an activity. Yes. And so the idea being that if you just refrain from this activity, then you are not this thing. And, and I think most of us <laughs> were like, no, that's bullshit. I'm always yeah. that thing. Well, right? clearly, <laughs> like, it's like straight people would never accept that about themselves, right? Like mm -hmm. if a straight person was celibate, they would still identify as straight, right? Like Obviously, they would never right. like give up that that's the default, right? Right, absolutely. And I think that that's, so thinking about queer identity in that way, realizing that there's something that's intrinsic to who you are about it that may or may not reflect the activities that you're currently engaged in made me think, think a little bit more about leather in that way, made me think about mm. punk in that way. It sort of mm -hmm. like made me think about a lot of things where I was like, I really want to understand what is it about these things? And you, you know, people can argue, oh, but that's different. Like being gay is a very discreet sexual orientation. Leather and punk are these like sort of communities or whatnot. Mm. But people used to say that about being gay as well, right? right. That, that being gay was just like some weird small community thing that, you know, and, and honestly, up until the late 19th century, it didn't even have a name. Like the word homosexuality exactly. didn't even exist. So right. what the fuck was it, right? So I guess that's the thing. There's a, there's something about this that rings true with my study of ethnicity. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'll make, I'll try to make this less convoluted, but like in, in my master's degree, I did a sociolinguistic study of Polari, the gay language. Yeah. And in that study, I started thinking about language as a component of ethnicity. And I started thinking about ethnicity deeper as a whole. And one of the things that I discovered, which I'd never really thought about before was, um, so ethnicity is a kind of fluid category. It doesn't mean race. It doesn't mean culture. Uh, ethnicity is actually a self-determined category. So it's when a group of people decide that the sort of way of ways of being that they share are different from the groups around them. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they cluster into what eventually becomes to be known as an ethnicity. And mm -hmm. so I was curious about this idea of a queer ethnicity because yeah. I was like, I, I like this idea of self-identification. And I th think also that's, that's sort of like leading me into this place for leather and it's leading me into this place for punk where I'm feeling like, like I have a, a good friend in England and I just did an interview with him for antimatter and his this this interview is based on the premise that he is not really looked at as a hardcore kid mm -hmm. but he does have this hardcore history he loves the music and you know even though his band is a dance punk band they're called friendly fires and they're like pretty big in the uk hardcore has already always been a part of who he is and so yeah. we were sort of discussing that and he continued to sort of like refuse to identify as a hardcore kid and I was like, you literally just went to a show by a super underground hardcore band last week that I would have never gone to. <laughs> <laughs> like you were there, you're contributing. 
you you're a part of the community yeah you you know and he was just like oh i guess i am you know it was like this he felt like there was like like i said to him i was like what do you you feel like you missed a test or something that you can't claim it now <laughs> but ultimately it's about that sense of being of, of knowing who you are what you're sort of like resonating with mm -hmm. and and who your people are and i think that all all of those things together sort of create this nexus of self-identification that I think is valid. And I don't ever want to be the person to try to snuff that out on either of those wings, really. Totally, totally. I think while you're speaking, um, what came up in my head was really the power of the internet when it comes to understanding all of these different cultures and let's say queer ethnicities and um, just different ways of being because at least for me growing up in a very small town you know it was the internet that at the age of 12 I was able to first come out to people and explore my queer identity in a safe space with people that were complete strangers that if they had a bad reaction, I could step away. Right. And it allowed me to figure out how to navigate that conversation, you know, when I eventually would have it with people in my life, you know, I was able to test the grounds and, and figure that out. But also I feel like the internet, you know, especially with Instagram has allowed me to to connect with so many more leather people than I normally would have contact with um, and to stay in contact with them to develop uh, friendships to develop community and I just feel like the internet has given us an outlet or a tool for us to really connect with these like micro communities um, or these communities that are less mainstream where we can sometimes find ourselves, you know, where we may be like, wow, like, I thought, like, that's how I feel with the leather community. Like, here are people that have like a similar, uh, um, not just like psychological makeup to me, but also like sensory makeup to me that they are perceiving the world, they, that they are um, excited or turned off by similar things. And there's a desire to also talk about those things. Um, mm -hmm. I find, mm -hmm. you know, as we've talked about, like, I hate small talk. Like, I don't want to talk about, uh, you know, clouds or whatever people talk about. I mean, like, I want to go deep and I feel like the internet has really just provided that um that landscape well, you know and it, people and it, i think we have a tendency to go and i don't know why this is maybe it is is that there's a and i hate to say that it's a false sense of security but maybe sometimes it is there is a false sense of security in, in speaking to people on the internet um right like you don't really know who you're talking to right. <laughs> but i i was actually i was speaking with someone who may be or may not be in the room right now um, but, um, uh, but someone who had started following me after you had posted about the upcoming yeah. thing and we got into this really, really deep conversation and I was like, 
And I said to him, you know, I just want to say, like, by the way, that, like, I really appreciate your uh, willingness to be open with a basic stranger right now. And that, like, I really just want you to know that I honor that. And I sort of make that a point to say in these situations. I want to articulate that because I want people to understand that what we're doing when we're relating with each other in a deep way in basic anonymity, it's something that, like, I think is good and that I actually cherish and that I I don't want anyone to think that this is stupid or that (laughs) that we shouldn't have those conversations. Or, you know, that um, it's not something that should be taken for granted. Um, It is something that should be like acknowledged and recognized as like the gift that it is because so many of us grew up in households in which we were really denied such connection. Or when we sought out such connection, um, we were ridiculed or made fun of or so forth. And so I think it's important to to really call out the power of just communication. Um, I've been really reflecting that there is something that you said in our last conversation, uh, and I'm not going to get the words correct, but you had something akin to Basically, you said something like that you feel very protective of um, like not just queer identity, but queer children, queer adults, and basically being like this father figure uh, as a way. And I feel like that's going along with what you're communicating at the moment is being this 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 person who is able to fill a void that, you know, that void exists because of our culture or because of the failings of our parents. Um, You're able to fill that void and um, you want them to to understand that it is something that, um, it is a void, it is something that's lacking. but like, I mean, this is also where I would say the, the punk and sort of queer experiences, I think for me intersect in a yes. real way, yes. which is that I think that, so I'm, you know, I just turned 49. I'm yes. very Gen X. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so I know that, you know, come, like coming of age when I did, the idea of a queer future was not a given. Right. Um, you know, in the 80s, everyone and everything was against us. You know, when mm-hmm. when yes. AIDS was sort of like in its prime in terms of the public eye, um, we were in danger in every direction. And yes. there, And as we know, like there were a great number of queer men who didn't survive it. Mm-hmm. who then weren't there to sort of provide that like sage wisdom or advice or, or yes. sort of, you know, to be our queer elders. A lot of people did survive and that's amazing, but we still didn't have a blueprint for what a queer future looked like. What a true 
and free queer future might look like. We really, that was still something that like everybody was just like looking in the dark for. Mm. I, I felt the same way as a young punk kid because punk is a youth subculture. And in the eighties and even early nineties, there was no blueprint for what that looked like. So like mm. this, just this morning, I was looking at an interview <clears throat> that I did in 1995 where somebody asked me about the future. And I brought up this, this guy who I was like, you know, this guy who goes to shows in New Jersey and, you know, he only has two t-shirts. He wears like a Dead Kennedys Nazi punks fuck off shirt or a Gorilla Biscuits t-shirt. And, you know, I was like, and he just like, you know, I remember some friends like were like, yo, asking about his record collection. He, he must be like 40 years old, you know, like I was, and I was talking to him about him. <clears throat> I described it like talking about him like a mythical creature. Like, oh my yeah. God, the rare 40 year old punk. You know, like, what can we learn from this specimen? The, the idea that you could be a 40 year old punk. And, and what was so fucked up was that like, my answer was basically like, now I don't wanna know, I don't know if I wanna be like that when I'm 40, right? <laughs> like I was dissing this guy essentially, who did nothing wrong, was doing amazing shit, was supporting the scene, yeah. didn't bother anyone, goes to the shows, buys the records, like all this. And I was like dissing him. That was sort of what it was like as a young queer, you know, like in the eighties and nineties, I would see the older queers and say, oh yeah, these guys like chicken hawks or like, you know, like, sure. you know, you, you, there was no intergenerational conversation. Mm. And so, so that's where the internet for both punk and queerness and leather, I think is, is really a, a great thing mm. because it's sort of, has normalized intergenerational conversations. It has not just normalized them, but actually elevated them, mm. where people mm. now are looking for who's, who's your punk elder, who's your queer elder, who's your leather elder, who, who can we learn from? And I think that those conversations are maybe the most valuable conversations that we can have, honestly. Like, when I think about some of, like, you know, my queer, elders who've sort of like been able to be there for me and even just sort of like just put things in a different perspective and make me realize like how lucky I probably have it <laughs> um it's it's been so rich and valuable to my life mm. to have that mm. and so yeah the, what you're saying that that element of of wanting to be or tapping into that sort of protector or nurturer or sort of like that vibe, that daddy vibe, whether it be punk or queer or whatever, yeah. I think is something that as I get older, I want to be there, basically. I'm not, I'm not searching you out, but if there's someone who's in a younger position who wants an intergenerational conversation that, you know, makes sense, then it's like, I'm willing to have those conversations. Mm. I, I'd, I'd like to be that person. Mm. So then going back to this interview question that you're, you're talking about from 95, how would you answer that today? Like, where do you see the future or whatever? Like, you know, what, what do you think are like, like 10 years from now, how do you think, or how would you like, let's say the gay community or the leather community or the mainstream community like what changes do you want to see or what changes 
do not want to see, but you see coming down the road. So, I mean, I'd say as far as queer people go, I think the biggest thing for me is to fight against this queer segregation that seems to be coming in some ways. Um, I think that we have this Talk moment. Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. I, can, I think, can you so I think we have, um, so essentially it's right now I'd say it's, it's a, at its most vulgar with the whole LGB without the T, okay. uh, you know, sort of weird yeah. thing that's bubbling up. Um, it's, this is, and this is maybe one of those reasons why intergenerational conversations matter, right? Because these people are sort of like rewriting the history of trans people in our community and in our, in our struggle. And they're diminishing them. And if anything, saying that they've been, you know, dead weight in the struggle. Mm -hmm. And that really couldn't be further from the truth. So that element of segregation, and that would be for any level of queerness. So this also goes back to conversations that we've had about quote unquote respectability politics, about the marginalization of leather people. You know, this idea that, oh, well, I'm gay, but I'm not that kind of gay, right? Like yeah. I'm not, yeah. I'm, you know, that's, that's also a type of queer segregation that mm -hmm. only hurts us. We have to sort of get to this place. I think one of the things about leather or kink or anything that we have to sort of understand is this. For my entire life, just plain old vanilla gay sex meant you were a pervert. You are a criminal, you're a pervert, mm. you're a sinner, you're a degenerate. For the most loving vanilla gay sex that you can imagine. <laughs> so if that is the bar, <laughs> then why are we judging anything above the bar? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Just do you. <laughs> and so there's that, that element of segregation just from that is very harmful to our community as a whole, because I think it, it, it's playing into the expectations and roles that uh, straight people or, or that oppressors really have mm. been using to divide us and conquer us for ages mm. to make you feel like shit, no matter mm. where you are. Yeah. And we also see this now, even, you know, legally speaking, like, you know, now in Texas, they're re looking at the right to, uh, for same sex marriage based on the Supreme court's new, yeah. it's okay to discriminate against gays thing. And so it's like, I'm sorry, but if you can't read the tea leaves, you're not looking. <laughs> yes. Yes. They'll come against, they'll come for trans people, they'll come for leather people, they'll come for fucking Pete Buttigieg. It doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> so it's so important right now that we not do this to ourselves and that we create the strongest, most cohesive together community that we can be. All, all the letters, all the kinks, all everything. <laughs> we need to be together because if we're not, number one, we're going to lose. Mm -hmm. And number two, we're also going to lose a huge part of our history because we didn't have the luxury of segregation in the past. There weren't enough visible out queer and trans people to create that, that 
movement in the path. Yeah. Now that there are, we have to be seen and we have to be seen together. And I think, again, going back to the power of the internet, I think that the internet has allowed people to see different ways of living. And I think that is partly responsible for there being like higher proportions of people identifying as LGBTQ, at least, you know, mm -hmm. when you look from, you know, Gen Z to, you know, baby boomers or the silent generation, I think the fact that, you know, younger kids have been seeing alternative ways of living other than what like Disney wants us to believe is the only way to live. Um, I think that that has really sparked um, that. And I think it goes back to what you're just saying of like understanding that leather people are a part of the greater like LGBTQ community and that we need to be, uh, you know, together in this fight because, you know, things at least in America, but I feel like in other places around the world are, um, are becoming less friendly uh, to us yeah. in some places. Yeah, 100%. And, and you know, it's really, it's difficult, um, you know, I will say this, like, I know that you, you had mentioned something about like um, kids that are sort of like on the internet and they're sort of maybe seeking these like alternative ways of, of being. But I also think that a lot of what we have right now is that we're finally just getting language for things. And I think that's that true, true. that's something that's like, you know, we have to sort of understand that, you know, I mentioned earlier right like the word homosexual didn't exist until the late uh 19th century i think it was and so when when that word came into being and by the way it only came into being as a way of pathologizing that. right <laughs> but when it came into being it created a unifying principle it created a way in which we could identify and and identify each other and, and become stronger together mm -hmm. and so now people are definitely having that situation where it's like there's language for this like you know i have two godchildren that are both um non-binary and trans and mm. you know it's like i know for a fact that if they grew up when i was growing up that would have been a million times harder and it was hard for them so even with the yeah. language so, you know, my whole thing is that basically, you know, I think about them and I think about sort of like, you know, them as being the young, you know, next generation and just wanting them to feel fully supported um, however I can. And so that absolutely extends to people that uh, are not my godchildren. Mm -hmm. But maybe, you know, like in queer, in queer land, I mean, you know, we talk about like, oh, that's my godchild all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So maybe I have plenty of godchildren. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the, um, what's the right word to say here? I mean, one of the, the benefits or like magical things in queer land is this ability, I think, to create like a chosen family that I think 
a lot of straight people just don't understand how powerful that is to be able to to do that. And I don't think a lot of straight people ever have to even think about doing that. Um, and when I have tried to explain this um, to people, I don't think that they understand the importance mm -hmm. of you, you know the found family and so forth. Um, that you know, for me at least, I feel like my life has been transformed by having people in my life who finally support me for me, you right. know, that I'm not trying to um, walk on eggshells and present myself as someone so that I'll get along with someone else, you know, and, and not, you know, go against their morals or their values right. or whatever. Like, I think it's so liberating. Like, I, the feelings I've had um, when I go to, like, IML, for instance, like, it's so crazy because it's like this is the like when I went to IML two years ago, it was like the first time that I was like I felt accepted in a large group of people. Like I just didn't like I was able to relax. Mm -hmm. And I was like this I had never been to like a summer camp ever before, but this felt like a summer camp, you know, and going back this year, it felt like, oh, you know, I'm running into all these people, I'm saying hi, like, it was really nice, but I just had never had that as a child. Like, but let me ask you, because yeah. I think this, this will be interesting to me. So yeah. I, so one of the, one person uh, that, that I mentioned earlier, who um, I had that conversation with, you know, we talked about uh, our place in the community, in leather, yeah. specifically. So do you still ever get into a situation where you're like, IML is a great place for this? Do you ever get into a situation where you're at IML and you're like walking around and you're like, am I leather enough? <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess, no, I guess I don't have that. Well, I got that in Berlin. Okay, okay. Berlin okay. is a little bit different, I will say. They're hardcore. Um, because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like in Berlin, I forget exactly what I was wearing. Um, I think I was wearing like a harness, but I had like a mirror cap on. And it really was a deviation from like the formal leather man look. Mm. And I remember I was at this bar and like, I could tell that these men were talking about me. Like, and I was like, what the fuck is your problem? <laughs> so, you know, and and I definitely feel like in the American leather scene, there's way more flexibility, you know, and you see this a lot. I know that there's more contestants that play with gender and play with shape more so than like the European contestants. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely felt like in Europe that there was like a strict standard of like, this is how your leather and if you're not doing this, then you're doing it wrong. And I really hate, like, I can't, don't, like, I'm not going to color in the lines. Like, right, how boring. Right. Like, that's right. not the point of life. Like, that is not the point. And if you think that that's the point, you're not living. Right. So, I, yeah, I mean, I've had those uncomfortable situations, but it doesn't make me question whether I'm leather or not. I'm just like, 
No, like well, it's not this not leather or doing. not, but leather enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do like do certain people make you feel that still? I just think it's interesting because I feel like, you know, when when we talk about leather, for me, it's always fun. Like I love having conversations with you about it because it it feels like, um, you know, we're always trying to sort of like come to some sort of place where we're like where our understandings meet, right? But I feel like there are so many understandings, unless you're hardcore old guard or, yeah. you know, something like that, where they're just like, where there are rules, right? Yes. And, and clearly, like, I'm, I'm not so good at rules. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's why we get along, because we, <laughs> it's probably why, like, although I don't, like, identify as a punk, I feel like leather is a way to connect with, like, my punkish side right right i mean and and, yeah. and and you know like i've certainly met people in the punk community that were less punk than you so, <laughs> <laughs> so you know like i said self-identify yeah. do what you got to do exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but i feel like you know that this question i think is always something that's really interesting to me because i do think that it's one of the things that um you know i've seen a lot of people especially like people that are like um you know like in new york the mm. current mr eagle yeah you know has has talked about and like that sense of like how do you get people to come to the eagle and feel like they belong right like yeah there's it's not like you know someone's at the door looking at your outfit and like i mean you know on gear nights obviously you gotta wear gear but like you know what i'm saying it's like mm -hmm. on a regular night no one's judging you by you know oh well, that that leather looks too new or, you know, right. <laughs> right. it's just not like that. So how do you create that inclusivity? I mean, I think that the Eagle is a great example because it allows people from all walks of life to enter in. Now, I mean, at least, you know, the last time I was there, there's lots of guys in jeans and t-shirts and so forth. So if they happen to be curious, about right. checking out that space, then they can do so. Um, and about inclusivity, I think that, you know, again, going back to the internet, the internet is a great place to like connect with people, but also to just like learn about different subcultures that you can be like, okay, what do people in this subculture do? Or what are, you know, what are some events and so forth? So I feel like, you can use the tools to learn more information um, about it. And I think the, the one thing that people find really intimidating about leather is the cost. You know, like mm -hmm. if you're going to go for a full leather outfit, it can be right. expensive. But, you know, when I first started getting into leather, all I had was this harness, right? Like I've had this harness for about 10 years. And I would go to various leather clubs in Europe and just have this harness and they would let me in, you know? And that was another way for me to explore that scene. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, at least for me, I, I feel like you have to invest a little, like buy something and you know, think about it as like a memento from that time. 
but it gets you a ticket into places that might otherwise be closed off, you know, in places that are, have like a strict code. And I think that there's no harm in just trying something out or just right. going and, and, you know, observing um, and seeing how you feel in a place um, and better understanding what, what are your, your desires, but also for me, um, because a, a lot of um, sex is psychological for me, understanding yourself on that level and getting to that, understanding the things that really push you. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's funny when you talk about trying it on because, and, and literally and figuratively, right? Yes. Um, there's there's a story that I always think about in my life that it, it sort of haunts me a little bit. Mm. So, all right. So many years ago in the early 2010s, I hosted a TV show. I think I told you this, right? I don't know if I remember this. <laughs> so I hosted a TV show on Here TV, the gay network. And okay. uh, it was called Here's the Deal. And it it was really called The Deal, but they were trying to be cute about it, I guess. They, okay. were, they were like, here's the deal. It was Here TV. Anyway, <laughs> so it was on Here TV. And so it was sort of a pop culture-y type show, but, or at least that's how it, it was pitched to me when they asked me to, to start hosting it. Okay. Um, but, you know, we, we would do like on the, on the street type segments and like we'd go to like, you know, obviously went, did one at Stonewall and did, you know, different yeah. places. So at this point, Nasty Pig was brand new, mm -hmm. right? It was a pretty brand new brand and they just opened up their shop in Chelsea and they wanted to do a segment at Nasty Pig. And I was like, okay, cool. So we did a segment and I was there with the owner, I think his name was David. And, uh, and he, he shot me around and uh, he really wanted me to try on some things. And at the time, it's not like Nasty Pig was like formal leather wear or anything like that. You know what I mean? Like it was still mm -hmm. pretty fetishy sportswear kind of stuff. Yeah. But I was still so in my head about like, I still had the respectability gay so sure. in my head that yes. I could not even allow myself to try on something from fucking Nasty Pig in like 2010. I was just like, no, it, it's cool. I'm good. <laughs> and I think that that experience really made me like, I've actually kept that experience with me ever since. Like mm. I've, I've almost felt a weird sense of shame about it. Like what's wrong with you? Why, you know, why were you that concerned with sort of like how you were projecting yourself uh, in public in a way that maybe didn't quote unquote fit your brand. Mm -hmm. And it's really nice to just be in a place in my life now where I don't give a shit at all. That I really yes. want to be who I am all the time. And it yep. doesn't matter. And if I want to, you know, hang out with the leather cook in his kitchen, we're gonna hang out. <laughs> you know, if I want to go fucking live blog from in front of the Eagle tonight, I'll do that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's really, it, this is the thing that I'm saying about, you know, this lack of segregation among queer people 
that's the only way we get freedom. Mm -hmm. So can I ask you, do you happen to own any nasty pig at the moment? I actually don't still, <laughs> but it's not, I'm not going to say why, but I don't. <laughs> but I also, you know, I, I have something similar. I mean, I'm trying to form this in a coherent way. Um, but what's the best way of saying this? Like, I, I would say that I see, um, you know, if we go back like 10 years ago, like I would see friends of mine walking um, around town or like at a restaurant with like a nasty pig hat. On, like the little like NP with the little pig nose one and I re always remember being like a little, little bit um envious of them that they had the confidence to wear that hat out in a non-gay only space mm. and um you know I now, now feel like when I look back, um, I feel like I've come a long way that now I can walk outside of my house in leather gear or wearing whatever just because I don't give a shit anymore. And I feel like we, you know, it's, it's a survival mechanism. I feel like, uh, you know, as gay people, at least for me, like I knew I was gay from a very young age and I, analyze myself to a T and because my parents and my sisters made fun of me and knew the things that they identified as gay because those were the things that were made fun of and so then I tried to downplay those things all my life and um and so my 20s like I keep trying to downplay my gayness uh, you know, and it's this, this survival mechanism that kept me safe as a child because I had no way of really escaping uh, my family and being in a healthy situation that, you know, I could, um, you know, just not really present my gay self for so long. Yeah. And now uh, this Instagram has really helped me show my like all my sides right. and my very gay side and the thing that i have been very like appreciative of is to be like respected but also like encouraged by that gayness and people like encouraging me um on those representations of things that i've always been like so afraid to share because it really harkens back to childhood shit and not being um treated well for just being myself right and i i mean it's been interesting because like so uh i'm i mean, very i don't know how i ever found you right like I'm yeah, a, i don't I'm know cook with steve how we followers. found each other <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember cook with steve that's yeah. <laughs> you're you're like an og follower <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, this Steve looks like a very nice boy. And then before I knew it, I was like, okay. 
and then he starts wearing leather. Right. Like, What's going on? Are you okay? Right. You know, I watched this sort of evolution and, uh, and, but to be fair, like, you know, the evolution was it actually felt fairly natural. Like it didn't feel like you went from like nice boy, Steve to like, you know, cigar chomping daddy or something <laughs> like overnight or anything like that. Um, and I, it, and what was nice about it was that it was sort of watching someone just becoming a little more comfortable just with their own presence, you mm -hmm. know, and like, like it never felt like you were performing. It really, it always, you know, and I think still, I think one of the things about your online presence that I think is something that people should take notes of, if I'm being honest, Thank you. is that I don't, you, you don't have a one dimensional performance. You're not just, you know, all, all leather all the time, right? Like right. you can be sitting around in shorts and a t-shirt pouring coffee and having fun. Like, you know, you can be a lot of the aspects of who you are. Mm -hmm. And there's never this, this feeling, I think also that you have to present in a certain way. I love the way that you're, you're just, you're, you talk exactly the same way all the time whether you're full cow or you know right. business cash right <laughs> and i that's like you know that's something i think i've you know, especially on social media i think we see these projections of leather men sometimes that feel a little overwrought in my yeah. opinion <laughs> um because i i I, th I think that leather like punk in my opinion is a community that is interested in finding the realest version of themselves. Hmm. What do you think it is about leather that helps that happen? That helps us either to like self-actualize or to find the realest version of ourselves? And I've spent I mean, for me, I'll, I'll answer this first and then let you go. Um, for me, I think about leather and I think about who wears leather. You either see someone riding a motorcycle, or you see gays, right? <laughs> like to me, leather is like almost the gayest thing that I can wear. And to walk around town in leather is to basically be like, I'm owning my gayness. Like, try mm. to fuck me up. Try to call me, you know, a slur because I'm going to own it, right? Because I'm that comfortable with myself. Um, so, yeah, I mean, why do you, what's your relationship there? What do you think? I, I think that, um, and I've, I, I think I've sort of expressed this one point to you before. How, when I think of like the leather mind, I think that one of the sort of key traits of it is exploration, mm, a, yeah. a willingness to, to go there, right. Mm. To put, put yourself in scenarios that, um, that you might not be comfortable with. Yeah. And if we're being honest, whether you're talking about leather play or life in general, the situations that we put ourselves in where we are the most uncomfortable are the ones where we find ourselves the most. Who 
when you say we find ourselves the most, you mean like we discover ourselves, yeah. like not that we spend the most time in. Right. No, 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 no. We that, that, find the place. Yes. It's okay. the place where we learn the most about yes. ourselves. Yes. Right. Like yeah. when, whenever you're put into a scenario that's stressful, that is uncertain, whenever you have to take a leap of faith, right? Like all these things, like when we were talking about before, even about subspace and sort of like that, that mindset of like being vulnerable and yeah. just having to put your trust in someone that they're going to do the things they said they were going to do, <laughs> right? That your negotiation was clear, whatever it is, you're still putting yourself, you know, in a place where there's, there's going to be a little bit of fear. That's sort of where the endorphins come from. Yes. Um, and, and that all of the, those parts of the mind at play are the parts of the mind that really push you to act in the, in your most natural primal way mm. right fight or flight is the most natural physical reaction <laughs> that you can have and when you're put in those scenarios where you feel that visceral like whoa like intensity of experience yes. again whether it's leather or whether it's your day-to-day -day life those are the places where your self becomes clear. Yes. Yeah, what's going on in my head is as you're talking about fight or flight, I'm thinking about a scenario in which perhaps like someone is restrained, like on a chair, they cannot fight, and they cannot fly. <laughs> so um, what is that we know do? do they you know, do they, are they fawning? Like, is that the the adjective or the verb here of like, you know, because there it's like, you have to, you're fighting against your fight or flight mechanism. You are basically trying to accept what is happening to you in a way um, and not fight about it and really be there in the moment so it makes me wonder like what's the right way to describe that is that um is that fawning um or well i what? can i can i can go into this in i mean it's funny because earlier i can't remember what you were talking about but you said something about like oh this buddhist bullshit. but actually this is a very key <laughs> this is so for anybody who doesn't know i do practice zen buddhism but like this is a very key sort of idea in Zen Buddhism. And, and I think this image that you, you sort of painted about being restrained, not being able to physically um, fight or flee, like yeah. what do you do, right? Yeah. And so there is this thing about in, in Zen Buddhism that we call as it isness. And <laughs> in as it isness, it's the, it's sort of the goal in a lot of ways, but the idea is that you have to look at the scenario that you are in exactly as it is, not in any other way, past, present, or otherwise, as it is. And if your scenario as it is, is I am restrained, <laughs> I can't get out, then you have to find other ways with which to cope, other mm -hmm. ways with which to sort of like, um, find whatever piece that you can find 
and yes. and so that sense of uh, that challenge really is the challenge of everyday Zen Buddhism. But mm. yeah, you can create some intense scenes out of it as well. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's not easy. I think that's the point. Right, right. It's, it's not easy. It's not, I'm not saying that like, oh, check me out. I'm the Buddha over here. Like, that's not, no. If you restrain me, I will bug out. <laughs> Naturally, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I recognize how not easy it is just because of past experiences. And so when I have people approach me, and they say something like, I want to be your slave. And I can see like, or I know that they have no experience or very little experience. You know, to me, it's like kind of like a red flag because I'm like, you don't, you don't quite understand where I'm going to go with this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you know what you're asking for. <laughs> Yeah. And, yeah, and you know, I think um, to add on to that, I feel like in, let's say, outside the leather scene, I feel like there's a predominance to focus just on, like, anal sex. And I feel like, uh, you know, the leather scene, there is way more play to understand the whole sensory world right. that we live in and how our bodies connecting how we're wired and playing with all of those different senses and our, our wiring and so for someone to with like very little experience to be like i want that i'm like well you kind of have to experience some of that first before right. you know that that's what you right. want right like right. That's, yeah so it makes me like a little worried because i'm like you you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be, you know, using those words lightly, I think. Right. Like, you know, if you use those words, I feel like there should be more intention. And it's not just like something you say, right? Like, it just felt like, oh, this is like play acting. Um, it certainly doesn't feel like anything I would say um, whimsically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Oh, yeah, if there's any sense of, of whimsy there, I would say run. Um, <laughs> but but I do, I also want to say that I think, you know, what you talked about just now about sensory sort of play and also sort of how that's very, very intrinsic to the leather experience, I think. And I mean, obviously, I think leather is a, is a tactile material. It's mm -hmm. something that for a lot of people, the touch of leather itself is the thing, yeah. right? So like, um, but I also think you don't talk enough about how that plays into the leather cook, because I do feel like, you know, your sensuality is sort of what brings you to this place of cooking to begin with. Mm. And I, 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 that's also yes. something that I love. I think it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a great point. I, I think that um, I've tried to do some writing myself on that, but it is something that I've, I always hope that it's something that's in between the lines that people are, are understanding. Mm 
on that, but I think that I probably should spend a little bit more time talking about that directly to understand that, um, you know, like for, for instance, when I have the coffee, it's so funny because like, I've been asked, and I would say it's like mostly by straight people. They'll be like, what's the coffee pour mean? And I'm like, <laughs> what do you mean? What does it mean? Like, what, like, what does that question even mean? Like, why, why does this one thing have to have like one interpretation? Like it could mean a lot of different things. Right. It could mean right. nothing. It could mean everything. Right. Like, and you know, for me, I would say, I, I tend to think about the coffee pours as like, here's something that we take for granted, right? Like, it's just like, oh, I want some coffee. I'm gonna have some coffee. Well, why not take this one thing that I do like every day and document it and like have a little ritual about it and like really praise it, you know, it's the simple thing, but it really makes the experience that much more meaningful and, and that's, that's like so the thing that's the thing so like for me it's the ritualization it's mm -hmm. the turning something this is actually also zen buddhist which is really funny <laughs> <laughs> oh wow like you you're so zen you don't even know it um i, I mean like i read a lot of like buddhist texts when i was like <laughs> in my 20s so uh, but it, but yeah. so zen is, is is sort of known as the the ritual form of buddhism meaning that like when you go into a zen center there's um there's a way of 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 being there's a way of of walking into the meditation hall there's a way of approaching each other there's a way there's there's all these different sort of um there's an entire litur liturgy of, mm. of 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 ritual and the ritual's not um what's the word i'm looking for like, like it's not um it's not religious it's not uh, there's no sense of divinity attached to it other than the divinity of people doing something together as a way of, of inherently understanding and feeling their interconnectedness mm. and also being able to sort of appreciate the imperfections of it because even yes. 10 people trying to say the same words at the same time, it's going to sound like a mess or right. someone's going to fuck up or whatever. And, and no one gets, you don't get chastised for fucking up. It's part of the ritual to appreciate. Right. But it's also like, yeah, we're human and like nothing's ever perfect. Right. Right. I mean, like and so, and so, so the idea behind Zen ritual is making something that's seemingly banal feel extraordinary. And some, something like pouring coffee, something we all do, or most of us do every single day, is maybe the most banal thing of all. And you've turned it into this sort of like ASMR yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like experience that, you know, to me is actually very leather. <laughs> Thank you. I feel like, uh, yes, you, you have. Uh, you, I feel like you've understood what I'm doing. My, <laughs> my whole artistic vision. Um, yes, I'm waiting for you to write the the intro of my future <laughs> biography. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm, I'm here for it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's, that stuff is really like it, maybe the Zen part really, cause at first we're, we're all very, I think maybe still shell shocked in the church, especially gay men, mm -hmm. um, where like the idea of ritual sometimes frightens us. And when mm -hmm. I first started going to Zen centers, I was like, ooh, this doesn't feel good. I don't like this. And it took a minute to really understand how to make ritual a part of your life yes. in a way that's positive and, and that yeah. expresses something deep about yourself. And I think connected to that also for me, putting on leather in of itself is another ritual that I partake in because if I'm looking to, you know, either access a part of myself, um, sometimes that might be easier done in leather or, you know, if I'm uh, having someone over for a particular scene, um, putting on the leather is the beginning of the scene for me. Like it's the, the warm up phase and there is some ritual there as well um that i feel like again what i'm trying to call forward is there are just so many like banal things that we do every day whether it's like pour coffee barber toast whatever that in of itself it's like meaningless but like we should be appreciating the simple things yeah um I mean, do you know yeah. how hard it is? I think about this every morning when I brush my teeth and I have this, you know, one of those electric toothbrushes yeah. that buzzes every 30 seconds. And I get so impatient sometimes when I'm like, all right, already, buzz, what's it, get to the next <laughs> side of my, my mouth. Like, what the fuck? I can't even brush my teeth without trying to like, just come on already, fuck, you know? Like, I can't wait right. 30 seconds, you know, like 30 seconds. So these rituals, these, um, these sort of ways that we can intentionally slow down mm -hmm. and experience something and not rush it and get every, all of the gifts that those banal things actually have for us. Like yes. that, that's, that's every, that's everything. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and that speaks, I think, to the sensuality conversation, right? When you're putting on your leather, you're feeling it you're hearing it, you're smelling it. There's a lot that's going on that if you stop and pay attention, your experience is so much different yes. than if you don't pay attention at all. Exactly, exactly. And to have, have a session with another person or groups of people, if one is so lucky, that they have a similar attitude towards life in which they appreciate even those fine details, the the sight of the leather, the the crunchiness, the the smell of the leather, and so forth, there is this heightened sensuality there that I feel like mm -hmm. is really missed in the culture that is just seeking to go from hole to hole and um, not really appreciate anything else um, there, you know, and sure. That's fun in of itself, but I, I always have a hard time describing leather to non-leather people. And I feel like it's, it's kind of like me describing 
what it is it's to be gay to straight people? I mean, I do think there's a way, and in the sense that when we first started talking about like what we could potentially talk about today, one of the things that I said was that I think that non-leather people, and for that matter, I'm going to say non even non-gay people, could learn a lot from sort of the mechanics of a, a leather scene. Uh, you know what I mean? Because I think that the things that are there to make that happen are things that really everyone could use more of. So yes. when I say that, I mean negotiation, clear communication, boundaries, you know, understanding each other, making the attempt to understand each other a little bit, <laughs> right. right? Like um, checking in aftercare. Mm -hmm. All these things that sort of like, to me, these are, these are all things that like seem like, yeah, of course. You know, if if you're doing anything yes. with a partner, these are all things that should be on your mind. <laughs> but again, it's the difference between with the 30 second toothbrush. Right. Right. Yeah. And I wonder whether, um, you know, going back to what you're just saying, um, this need for like direct communication and boundaries and so forth. Um, the type of people that seek those out, right? I mean, for me, I would assume everyone wants that. And that's what I, don't I would know think if that's necessarily <laughs> the case. I don't know if that's I don't know if that's the case. Um, but I would think that I have a lot of straight friends who, if you said, "Hey," can you incorporate these things into your play or, or sex life or whatever it is that they would be like, that sounds incredible. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like you don't even yeah. have to be kinky for that to be, oh yeah, that makes sense. Yes. <laughs> yes. And um, so that's, yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like uh, the people that I have had uh, long sexual relationships with are people that are very clear in the communication style and very direct, but also have a sense of curiosity. I feel mm. like um, sex can become very boring. I mean, for the lack of a better word, it can become very predictable. Sure. And I think that one thing that the leather world offers is it offers basically a judgment-free zone in which you can explore uh, different sensory experiences uh, and basically have way more variety than I think outside of that uh, community. So I'd say like, then I would add three more words to that list, right? Which are the three words that I think are the best words, again, in any scenario, curiosity, trust, intimacy. Mm. And I think like that is essentially what I honestly, like I think in a lot of leather play, like that's that, that sense of intimacy and trust is so baked into it 
that it's yes. also it's part of the endorphin. It's part, of, you know what I mean? It's, yes. It's, it's, it's part of it for sure. Yes. Yes. And I definitely feel like for me, one thing that I feel like I'm often working through are just like trust issues. Like I just, you know, have a hard time trusting people. And um, I feel like being in the leather community and having really intense sessions has only helped me start gaining trust again. But it definitely connects back right. to, again, like for me, everything connects back to childhood stuff. And I really don't believe yeah. people who are like, oh, childhood doesn't really affect anything. And I'm like, well, maybe you haven't done your work. Right. Um, and always myself, <laughs> like, but it does. Right. right. So I hate to break it to you. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but that's you know that's where our psyches come from and i think it's 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 dishonest it's intellectually dishonest and just dishonest in general to think that your sexual psyche somehow is completely separate from the rest of your psyche right, right. so all, all of the things that have affected me um you know throughout my life whatever you know childhood abuse i suffered whatever weird thing happened to me in school whatever you know whatever baggage i'm carrying with me seeps its way into every part of my psyche it's just the way it is and that doesn't make you this is the other thing like we as queer people should be finished with the idea of pathologizing ourselves it's mm -hmm. so crucial that we not think of these things as that as somehow like this makes us fucked up or wrong or yeah. like, <laughs> right. It's like, no, we're just, we're literally just living the human experience. And, you know, we're given the brains that we're given, we're given the experiences that we've had. Our body is tr trying to make sense of it. <laughs> Our brain exactly. is trying to make sense of it. And we occasionally express ourselves in different ways as a way to process. Yes. So I'm going to say something like, like kind of controversial, okay. but with a little key stretch for me. Um, uh oh. But sign so, you off. See it. No. <laughs> so let me say this. I um I've been really struggling with basically like how we diagnose people with like various conditions, mm -hmm. whether it be, um, you know, someone has borderline personality disorder or um, someone is autistic and so forth, because it's, it's similar to like how straight is the dominant and anything else is like not straight. Essentially, like when you look at the DSM and you look at how the psych um, community looks at these um, conditions, it's always from the point of view of like a normal person, but like that doesn't really exist. Right. And I think that there's always this like perception of, of like these different neurologies or, or um, you know, ways that we, we may be neurodiverse. I feel like we're always concerned about the deficits that they present and the difficulties mm -hmm. and it's mm -hmm. not necessarily recognizing that well maybe the normal brain also has deficiencies 
Maybe they also have deficits, but it's always from like, here's a reference point and let me, you know, make a criticism from that reference point. And also you should say the deficits that you're talking about or the seeming or the perceived difficulties that they're talking about are based on the the quote unquote norm. Yes. Right. The deviation from the norm. Yes. And so that normalizes certain difficulties that the norm has, right? While sort of othering these other difficulties. And because they're the people who are doing that don't have the pure experience of the people that they're diagnosing. Exactly. They see it as more difficult and like horrible and to be avoided. Whereas the people who are experiencing it are probably, you know, I'm not saying that they're having an easy go, but they're experiencing it in a different way. Yes. And and so it's sort of like the way we talk about gay struggle versus, you know, sort of non-gay struggle. Mm-hmm. It's like, yes, are there are there issues with being queer in this world that create difficulties and struggles for me that I wouldn't have otherwise? Sure. But mm-hmm. Does that mean that I'm not thriving under these conditions? Totally. Does that mean it's impossible to thrive under these conditions? Yes. Absolutely not. And it, it, a lot of it is the perception. It's what you pay attention to. Mm-hmm. So I could sit around and pay attention to the idea that, well, fuck, like, I'll never have a kid of my own or something like that. That's not a real thing that I ever think, but let's just say I that love, that was one of my I, things. Also, also, I love your straight voice. I love how you're like, oh. and they never have, they're like, going into like a Jersey accent. Like, right, I, well, you know, that, I'm, I'm thinking of people who want kids. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> but but um, I, could, I could create that struggle in my brain, or I could say, wow, I have this like situation where I don't have anyone depending on me and how can I make that work for me? (laughs) Right? So it's always going to be about that perception. It's not about the actual difficulty itself. And I think that it's important to recognize that perception because I think, you know, again, going back to being a kid, the perception that my mother had of gay people were that they were perverts, they were deviants. And if I was going to be gay, I was going to die of AIDS. Right. Like, that's literally same. what I was, you know, told. Yeah, so, um, you know, and, and I feel like I would never take away my gayness, like the, the, the freedom that I have as a gay man I clearly recognize and sure you know that may be the case here in America that if I was in Russia or some other place would not be the case however you know I'm not living all those lives I'm here in America and it is afforded me a way out of like the heteronormativity that I think is a cage that so many straight people put themselves in and don't even realize it. For me, the thing that I would never trade in, and I would never trade it in. If if somebody said I could do this all over as a straight person, I'd be like, no, not interested. No. And 
But one of the things that I, I feel the most strongly about is how much my experience um, gave me a deep sense of empathy and care for people who are struggling and mm. also people, just people in general. I mean, I, I honestly feel like this is where every part of me that I think people value, my ability to listen or my ability to sort of intuit things or my ability to give advice or my ability to just be there for a person, just hold space for them and understand who they, you know, what, that they're going through something, whether or not I can fully grasp what they're going through. Mm -hmm. All those things, which I think are gifts, um, I believe are directly uh, descendant from my experience as a gay man. Yeah. And I would never trade that in because it's literally who I am. Do you think, at least my theory on this is that, you know, I, I certainly identify with all those things that you just listed. And I often think that's because as gay men, we, we get to know ourselves on a deeper level much at a much younger age than I think other groups do. And because of that, we become more intuitive because we're so, we have felt those things in ourselves that then we can sense it in other people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've gone through the, um, you know, canonical like dark nights of the soul type of thing. And we can recognize that in other people because we started out life for many of us going through that. You know, like mm -hmm. I have, I recognized that I was gay the first day of my kindergarten class. Like I knew I was not like all the other boys. And that really started like, like that day, like kicked off this like whole internal monologue in my head of like, why are you different? Like what, right. what, what is going on here? You know, why are these boys so annoying? I like always talk about my yeah. second grade teacher that I, you know, I think I've told you about, you know, my second grade teacher, I would say he was the person that that was probably the moment that even though I didn't have the word for it, that was the being in his class. So my second grade teacher, I'll just, again, I've told you this, but for people who don't yeah. eavesdrop on our conversations, <laughs> uh, my, my second grade teacher was an amazing man uh and, and if you saw a picture of him today you would be like oh he's clearly going to fire island this weekend <laughs> <laughs> he was very gay man in the 70s early 80s right mm -hmm. and it you know the mustache and sort of like the free-flowing hair and just yes he was very yeah very very of the time and um i remember I remember being in his class, I remember really feeling a strong affinity for him. And I mm. remember feeling very strongly that this was my person, that mm. whatever he is, I am too. And there was nothing remote, like there wasn't even anything culturally gay about him other than how he looked maybe. It wasn't like he mm -hmm. was like, schooling us on Donna Summer or anything like, 
right? Imagine. (laughs) (laughs) He was just a plain old teacher. But that's what I mean when I talk about that sort of like ability to self-identify and see it in other people. Mm. When, When you are something, people who share that can see it too. Yes. and call it out in you. And yes. I realized that even at seven years old, I saw it in him, I identified it in him, and yep. I realized that that's what I was. And that's, I, that's fucking profound, honestly. Yes, <laughs> yes. And isn't it amazing that you were able to have that experience at the age of seven? Because think about so many kids who would benefit from having similar experience but unfortunately they were being raised in perhaps a small town that had no gay teachers and they had no you know possibility to know that this was like another way to exist right in this world right and it definitely you know he put me you know just seeing him and and sort of like having that year with him you know it put me in a place where i definitely did feel less alone even though I understood that even though what I understood wasn't clear to me yet, mm-hmm. like I knew what being gay meant and I knew, I knew that I liked boys. I probably known that I liked boys forever, but mm-hmm. that experience with him sort of crystallized all those things into one sort of cohesive idea of, oh, like this is actually like a way of being, yes. <laughs> <laughs> which, yeah, I mean, eventually you sort of, and, and again, like that didn't necessarily help me come out when I was 12 either. Right. I still, <laughs> I still had to deal with all the self-hatred and everything of that course. I've learned at home. Right. Right. Um, and, and the media and, you know, because at that time, like it's all about AIDS and AIDS and Jerry Falwell yeah. and fucking, you know, everything. Yeah. I mean, so it was like, that was completely uh, a huge part in why I stayed um, hidden for so long. But I think that it's definitely a huge part of my awakening story, you know, and, and I, I always think of him, you know, and unfortunately, and I've said this to you, and, but I have a hunch anyway, that um, I was able to find his obituary uh-huh. and he had died not too much, not too long after, um, I was in his class oh. and it's, he was young and he was gay yeah. and the obituaries, you know, he didn't have any, um, he didn't have a wife and children. We'll say that. And, <laughs> um, I do believe the obituary said that he died of cancer, but that was very common in the early eighties. Yes. So who knows? Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, what's coming to my head is that it's just about um, this practice of of straight washing where, you know, for instance, here, uh, you know, this man's life that he lived potentially is not being um, presented in an honest way in his obituary because those that wrote the obituary may feel uncomfortable with talking about gay life and so forth. And I feel like it's really important going back to previous things that we said about like maintaining 
our own history and being honest about it. Because if we put it at the hands of straight people, they really don't know. They really don't know right. what it is to live as a gay person. Like, right. you know, as much as they may be allies, and I think that allies are important, it's also to recognize when they don't know uh, the full, full experience. When they're out of their depth, which yeah. is something that like, even as like, you know, as trans allies, you know, I try to step the fuck back, right? Like, I do what I can to sort of promote that uh, inclusivity and sort of like talk about the amazing trans people in our community and in history. Um, but there's a point where you have to step back where I'm out of my depth, right? Because I don't fully understand the experience. And I think that the people who are living it should be, they should be the yes. ones that their experiences are centered and, and you know, um, and listen to. Totally. So how did this come out, by, by the way? Oh, so, uh, well, maybe I can show you that. So they are nice and um, like a golden brown. Um, I will so make this for precious. you if you uh, decide to visit in September. And yeah, I mean, they're, they're very buttery if you're into butter. Um, <laughs> that's what makes them golden and uh yeah so is that sure. sort of like a coconut macaron or yeah like yeah you of? can think about it as like yeah. a swedish coconut macaron um, okay so i'm a big fan of that and then um i ended up also making something vegan which i made a um salad with black beans and kidney beans and barley wow and dress that up with some olive oil and some uh apple cider vinegar so um so I have tell me the dark tell me the dark secret of the leather cook do you actually just bring like tupperwares full of food to all your neighbors because <laughs> <laughs> there's no way you can eat that all <laughs> i mean this certainly right like this That's... is a pretty healthy meal and um yeah. <laughs> this so what i do during the weekends is i make a lot of food so that during the week i um you know may feel more exhausted because of work so i try to always have like leftovers and things like this so this is going to okay. be my lunch for a few days um, probably will get me through Wednesday. Okay. And then when it comes to like these, uh, desserts, well, I probably will give a few. You'll probably eat them all tonight. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I will have another one today and I'm very, very good about, um, limiting myself of exercising control, uh, when it comes to this. Right. And so. I typically will limit myself to like one or two a day and then give a few pieces to friends. And um, yeah, I give a lot of my desserts, like usually half of my desserts I will give to people. Um, like last week I gave I like a fishmonger at the 
farmer's market and I gave her these like um I put it on uh my Instagram these like fudge and chocolate balls and so I gave them to her I gave her a few and today she told me that she really loved them and that she thought it was so sweet that I gave her some chocolate <laughs> balls so uh I thought that was nice <laughs> I mean yeah like you you've clearly got the food to spare <laughs> every time i see you cooking i'm like how in the world what is he doing with all this food <laughs> yeah usually on like a sunday or monday like my fridge is usually like packed full of meals and then i'm kind of just like surviving in some ways for the rest of the week because i'm like i am so tired i don't feel like you know, cooking that, you know, intensively. This is actually the part where I feel like, so there's the question of, are you leather enough, right? I don't have a problem with that question, but are you a cook enough? I'm not a cook. Yeah. I'm so bad. So, so I'm, I'm po I feel like this is the part of where I'm, I'm posing. Well, I'm a total poser. The, I would say I, I struggle with that, you know, because I am not, I, I'm totally self-taught. You know, I've taken zero cooking classes. I mean, since like the sixth grade was like my right. only cooking class. Um, but I feel like cooking should be available to the masses. I feel like you shouldn't have to have a degree in it. You should be able to open up a book and cook. And so I, I try to present recipes and do things that I feel like should be accessible to everyone. Um, and when when people ask me like really cooking chemistry questions, I'm kind of like, do you really care about that? Like, is that really interesting? Because <laughs> let me tell you, I'm bored by the question. Like, I'm just not But interested. it's like, it's, it's like me as a musician, right? I'm completely self-taught. I've never, I just picked up a guitar one day and was like, I'm going to keep moving my fingers until it sounds good or yeah. right or or write it enough. <laughs> and I've kind of just kept going and kept going. And when people want to talk to me about anything guitar related, like literally anything like chords or technique or equipment gear, like mm. whatever, like, I'm just like, I don't really care. Like if, if it sounds good, that's all I care about. I, um, <laughs> I am so glad that you're saying this because that's exactly how I feel about cooking. Like I get asked sometimes about like really nitty gritty details about food. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. And I don't care. Like, let's talk about sex, but I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> like this is boring to me. <laughs> so I, <laughs> it's probably, you know, something that I'll probably need to like work on if I'm going to, I don't know, like do this, but. I mean, if, if we're ever going to get a leather cook cookbook. Well, that is one thing that I've been like thinking, I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. And this earlier this year, I was like, you know what, maybe I should be doing a self publishing um, route for the cookbook because like, um, you know, like, I'm trained as a mathematician, so as a mathematician, we have to learn this software called um, LaTeX or LaTeX. Uh, 
that basically, um, like I wrote a cookbook in 2015 using this, like, and it looks pretty nice. Okay. And um, so I'm like, I already have like the technology down and what I'm going to do is just like, what I'm thinking is like, take basically recipes that I've put on my, my Instagram and write them up in a book, but I want it to be a little bit more me. So I'm thinking that like how I've been trying to decide is like chapters. Like I'm thinking that I might have a section about Sweden and that maybe I'll open that up with like an essay about Sweden and exploring the leather side of Sweden and mm. then showing people food. And again, like having it be like a full, as much of, of like a full sensory experience in a book that you can have. Um, right. but, but yeah, so I'm thinking that I might, like for many years I was like, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get a publisher. I'm gonna get the agent, blah, blah, blah. I mean, if that came my way, great. The thing is, it's like, I don't want to deal with like a straight agent who wants to minimize uh, my presence or minimize the gayness. Like, if anything, my book I, is going to be like. You're, you're underestimating how much people are just like, he's got a big social following. <laughs> <laughs> they would never minimize you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, minimize by like, being less gay like I want basically like a cookbook that's verging on pornography like, <laughs> uh, that, and I'm like maybe I just have to do this like maybe I just have to do this myself I mean with that description I don't know that I want it no <laughs> I think everyone wants it like I'm everyone scared. wants it. <laughs> you're, you're testing my sense of self um <laughs> No, but I mean, I, I do think I like the idea because I know that you think of food geographically and there's a lot of that's that shows in your in your feed, mm. um, you know, and a lot of your cookbooks are, are geographic yeah. as opposed to like, you know, other types of cookbooks or whatever. So it's like I think that that's like smart and and learning something about le the leather scenes in these different places also, I think it's really cool. Yeah, I think there's a market for this. There's actually, I'm sure there's a queer publisher who wants all of your, your queer self yes, to do that. Yes. So, it, you know, if I happen to be able to make connections with a queer publisher, that would be great. Um, that's where I am at the moment is, is trying to think about that because I feel like I have so much material at the moment on my Instagram that to be able to boil that down into a book would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. Well, I really appreciate you uh, joining me for this conversation. Can you believe that we've been talking for two hours? No. <laughs> kind of. Well, we do that. Yeah, I feel like <laughs> <laughs> two hours is like our normal two, two to four hours. Um, I don't know if everyone else can handle that. But um, I actually just did a podcast. Um, that was over three hours wow. and a lot of people DM'd me to say they listened to all of it. And I was like, wow. 
Okay, cool. Um, I so. mean, I, I don't know about you, but I'm always listening to podcasts. Like, you know, if I'm not on the phone talking to someone, I always have my headphones on and I'm listening to just people talk. Interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely more of a reader, but mm, I like For me, read. I can only read in the morning. Like when I first, first wake up, I will read and I'll read for about an hour. But if I try to read in the afternoon or in the evening, um, typically like I'll just fall asleep. Like I'm not going to retain anything. So it has to be like right when I wake up. And but then... I have books for that too. <laughs> I have books where it's like, it's cool if I fall asleep. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Almost books where you're supposed the, to fall the asleep. Point is, <laughs> yes. yeah. I, um, earlier, this year i don't know if you've ever tried to read infinite jest oh god no <laughs> i don't know why i started out this year like i'm gonna read this book i'm gonna do this and i got through, through like the first like 150 pages and i was like i like and out of the 150 pages there was like one page i actually liked and the rest <laughs> of it i was just like this is like, I'm just not getting anything out of it. So I stopped reading it, but it is like one of the books that I'll read if I really want to fall asleep. Yeah. Um, well, one, yeah. 150 pages though, is a valiant effort. I'll give you that. It is. I mean, I, I'm still determined to read it just to be, just to say like, I read it, but yeah, it's not as fun. I mean, did you do War and Peace? I have. <laughs> I okay. have, and I do like War and Peace. <laughs> I do like Anna Karenina. Like, Anna Karenina is, like, my, one of my favorite books. But, yeah, I've already done, I've read all of Tolstoy. Like, okay. I've done all of that. <laughs> I've done all the Bronte sisters. Like, I've done, I've done all of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, it's dense academic books at night. That's the way to go. <laughs> or just the ones, where, and, and the other thing about academic books is like um, it's cheap paper and the type is always weird. And it just makes you drowsy. It's like mm. designed to to make you drowsy. I'm you what have that you... academic thing, so it's like you'll you'll understand. <laughs> <laughs> what what book are you reading at the moment? Maybe not for sleeping, but just in general. What are you reading? Um, so I'm reading like a couple of books. Like I have a if you see at my knife stand, I have yeah. um, probably like. 10 books on it. Um, I'm going to get this one book though. This sure. Is... This book, uh, Our Migrant Souls by mm -hmm. Hector Tobar, um, okay. a meditation on race and the meanings and myths of Latino. It's really, it's something that I've been really thinking about a lot lately because um latino is such a weird term that means a million things and nothing as mm. far as i'm concerned <laughs> because latin america is not a monolithic place sure. at all <laughs> and so latino is just this category that's been invented for the rest of the world i guess like to sort of make sense of us <laughs> And, and then we struggle with what that means for our own sort of individual identities. Um, and so it's one of the things where it's like, I sort of relate it to queerness in the way of like, there's this, you know, rainbow of 
you know, types of queers and, and you know, uh, different sexual identities and gender identities and all these things that for political purposes and for historical purposes too, because our socio-historical, our socio-historic moment is very intertwined. Mm. We, we sort of need to have that cohesion. Um, but I, I guess we're getting to a place, I think, in history where Latin folks are starting to be like, okay, but have we lost something too? And mm. what does this really mean to be Latin, Latino, Latinx, whatever you want to say? Yeah. yeah. Um, or, or we talk about Latinidad, this okay. weird notion of, which is almost like a weird word that, that implies that there's some sort of monolithic culture. But, mm. you, know, you know, all Latin cultures don't even speak the same language, right? Like, we, <laughs> it's like, I mean, the, there's hundreds of indigenous cultures that have nothing to do with each other, right? So it's like, so how do we maintain a sense of sort of cohesion? I think for the sake of, at least in America, there's a political advantage to having that cohesion. But, you know, culturally and sort of individually is there a benefit to that mm. and so that's sort of like the question that i think a lot of people are, are getting at um yeah anyway <laughs> yeah so i think about these things a lot because i think about them in terms of queerness too and i think about like that sense of like the benefits of sort of being together but i think the latino moment is very different than the queer moment right now mm. and mm -hmm. i think it there is sort of an importance now in in understanding our individual histories and cultures and celebrating that as well without necessarily you know divorcing ourselves from the entirety of latin america mm. <laughs> yeah that's interesting mm. well i am reading at the moment i happen to have the book right here um so i'm reading this book called my cat yugoslavia Okay. I don't know it. And uh, this, I think it came out last year, maybe. Um, but it's interesting because actually it came out six years ago. Um, it's basically two stories in this book. Uh, one story takes place in the 1950s in Kosovo and centers around around um, like a female protagonist and I've only gotten through a third of it but it's around basically like an arranged marriage and how she essentially becomes property of her husband and it's making me think all about like generational trauma and how like in the book, she, you know, she talks about a lot of things that are happening to her that she didn't feel comfortable with. But because that was the norm to experience this, she just tells herself that this is okay. You right. know, it is okay um, for this. And then obviously, like that feeling of discomfort doesn't like just disappear right like you know more research that we do we see like well chronic illnesses can sometimes come from from such a thing or 
you know, your parents may be traumatized that they don't want to recognize it and then they bring it on to you and right. so forth. Right. So the other um, narrator that the book follows is her son who, you know, it's, it's in the 2000s and he's living in Finland. So there's some like escape from Kosovo to Finland, but he's also gay. And um, so I think that there's a lot of conflict in the book about like dealing with cultural expectations uh, because the gay son does not want to abide by the expectations of his, his parents. Um, but also his mom didn't want to abide by her expectations, but she kind of just did it anyway because that's what people do and it just makes me like it's bringing up emotions of just like I feel like a lot of people just go through life going through these stages because that's what people do and they don't really ask themselves the hard question of like is this what I want like am I willing to take control of my life and do the thing that I want to do I mean the real question right is like must I endure this yeah sometimes sadly the answer is yes i think there are situations where you know like when you described that earlier it sort of like brought me back to that uh the vision of being restrained mm, and yeah that feeling of like fuck um what do i do right like sometimes yeah. sometimes nothing sometimes you have to change your internal perception to to sort of temporarily escape that yeah. Um, but it's, it's still a lack of choice. There's still a lack of choice involved. So yes. And I, I think, I mean, not to like go so psychological, but I think a lot of the relationships that I put myself in, in my youth and like in my twenties was a form of that. You know, I think it was a form of like emotional bondage or like, you know, just a restraint in some capacity and like testing myself because I feel like, well, that's all I knew, right? As a kid yeah, was to exist in the space in which I had to like sacrifice myself and, you know, kind of recommitting this like crime against my body or like a crime against my drive um i mean it was just like that was my whole 20s well this and, is where we we could circle back to the beginning of the conversation yes which is that ultimately this is partially where our weird assertion for control comes from totally, yes. <laughs> and so here we are <laughs> But it's, it's, I mean, again, I don't want to pathologize it. it yeah. It's just. I mean, it is. It is just the human experience. It's the condition. And I feel like, you know, it's, I think there's power in recognizing one's behaviors and one's patterns mm -hmm. and being very aware of those and checking in with yourself to say, is this really in alignment with my values? Like, is this really what I want? Or do I want something else? And allowing you 
allowing your you to like question things, allowing you to take space for that examination. I think that's where the power lays and just recognizing that you have that control. Being deliberate. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's a concise way of saying it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, now that we just killed another half hour. I know. <laughs> you can just call me after this if you I want. Know. <laughs> um, so, Norman, uh, as we close this off, uh, one, are there any, like, Closing remarks or things that you want people to to hear from you that you haven't been able to communicate or hasn't come up. Um, and two, um, how do you want or how could people um, get to know you better if they so choose to? <laughs> um, I feel like we covered a lot. So. <laughs> I don't know that I have any anything much more uh, to add without tacking on another half hour to the, <laughs> to the, uh, the conversation. But um, yeah, I am at Norman Brandon pretty much everywhere, Instagram and Twitter and threads. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> blue sky. And uh, I, I am on blue sky, but I have sort of stopped. Blue sky got really, it just feels like grinder <laughs> and i was kind of like okay I, i'm this is maybe a little too much for me right now <laughs> so you're not into the whole like twitter porn thing no it's never yeah. yeah um it's too much it's like i don't like having any agency over what comes up on my phone when i open an app <laughs> So that's how Blue Sky was feeling. I was like, okay, shit. Um, <laughs> so, so you're not into glory holes, is what you're saying? <laughs> I'm actually not, okay. no. <laughs> <laughs> I like to know. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so at Norman Brennan everywhere. Um, I also, if you're into uh, punk or hardcore music, I uh, am publishing a newsletter at um, antimatter.substack.com. And, uh, you know, that's a place where it's pretty much just a lot of essay and conversations with different folks. Um, and if you like my styles of conversation with the leather cook, then um, maybe that would uh, be something you'd be interested in over there. Great. Um, so thank you so much for everyone who has joined us throughout this conversation. My plan is to post this onto Instagram and then I will take the audio and put it on Spotify as well um, because perhaps because this is a long conversation, it's a little bit easier to digest <laughs> over Spotify. So <laughs> that is the plan. Um, if you watching this um, or listening to this, if you happen to be interested in having a conversation with me over live, feel free to reach out and we can go from there. Uh, anyway, thank you all for joining. Thank you, Norman, for thank you. joining. And uh, I hope you all have a great day. Take care. Bye. Bye.